Welcome to Aesthetics Mastery, the podcast to help you thrive and raise the bar in your aesthetics practice. I'm Dr. Adam Chong. And I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. Tim Pierce is the director and founder of SkinViva, SkinViva Training, and a general practitioner. And Dr. Adam is also a general practitioner, uh, an aesthetic trainer, and aesthetic doctor for SkinViva Training and SkinViva Limited. Hello again, Tim. So it's been a really nice few weeks of weather. And last time we spoke to you, you had uh, started running every day when you woke up early in the morning. How's that going? I am still doing it every day, I'm pleased to say. Um, and yeah, it's now it's now becoming almost like muscle memory. I just get up and accept that that's the next stage um, rather nice. than feeling a bit more like, you know, you know, when you start, it's like, oh, I've got to, I said I'd do that run. Now it's just, it's almost like your body starts to accept this is an inevitable thing. Mm. Um, so less willpower is involved. Um, but it's still, I highly mm. recommend it. I feel really good afterwards. Uh, it doesn't last forever. I have noticed like, if I don't have a good breakfast, I can have this crash as my um, sugar, I think, mm. sugar levels drop um, round about when I'm arriving at work, which is not the best time. Mm. And it's probably not before then. It's probably about on the drive to work, and then I feel a bit better after a cup of coffee when I get here. So, um, yeah, so the, the take-home is also I need to build in a, a slightly better breakfast if I'm going to run every day. But, yeah, it's been good. What, what, are, you, what are you doing for the breakfast these days? I just have what, have what the kids have, which is a bit Cocoa of some pops. Weetabix and some muesli, nothing too complicated. Okay. Um, a lot of people say that when you exercise early in the morning, it helps your sleep quality. Are you finding that you're sleeping better? Oh, I could talk for half an hour on sleep. I, I, have, I discovered quite late mm. in my life that I need less, that I've had basically eight hours is bad for me. Ah. And, uh, and around about six and a half, and I, I feel much brighter in myself. And then this kind of sluggishness. Mm. But in terms of sleep quality, I used to be one of those horrend- those people, you know, have to have blackout bri- blinds mm. and pillow over your head and all sorts of devices to like make things, conditions perfect. Yeah. I'm not like that anymore. I, w- I just, I hit the, hit the pillow, comp- sometimes completely out cold until my, my alarm goes off. And then in that days nice. of like, what day is it? Um, <laughs> Do you still hook that teddy in bed? Miranda, Miranda was telling me about that. Or How did you know about that? <laughs> No, the kids have taken all my teddies now. But yeah. <laughs> so uh, the past few weeks, I've been listening to um, a chap called Rangan Chatterjee. He's a GP. Have you ever seen that series Doctor in the House? Or have yep. you heard of it? So it's, it's him. Um, and he's absolutely great. So basically, he's, he's, there's like a movement now called li- lifestyle medicine. Sounds very simplistic, but it's something that's been neglected, I think, in the field of medicine and healthcare moving away very much from this there's a symptom let's treat that symptom and moving back to the root causes of disease and he actually says disease is an, is an illusion um so he's great so he breaks down basically health into four pillars and it's movement see if i can remember the movement diet or food sleep and relax um, and every single person can relate to this and usually there's one at least one if not all of them which we can address um, and yeah, so listening to this guy, it's really made me sort of rethink a few aspects of my life. So I'm on a massive health kick at the moment. I've just had a really beetroot salad and quinoa. I made a super salad. For, but eating this sort of food is making me feel better. I'm less sluggish. I'm cutting down sugar, drinking way more water. Um, there's things like re- relaxation, though, and uh, getting away from screen time, mm-hmm. which I think is something we don't do enough of. Oh, uh, that's actually a new part of my morning is I don't look at my phone until... Uh, after my shower, after my run, I used to look at yeah. the first thing, like lie in bed, and it's a horrible way to start the day. It is, isn't yeah. it? Absolutely. And a lot of people are advocating this um, first first thing in the morning, but also the last hour and a half before bed, 
phone should be kept downstairs because it affects your sleep as well, the blue light apparently. Yeah. Um, so there's that, there's downtime, there's your sleep quality, so the whole sleep hygiene thing. And then movement, making sure we're doing enough. So it doesn't need to be running five miles a day, but it can be simple. So he sort of advocates these exercises in the kitchen and on the stairs and when you're brushing your teeth, doing some calf raises or little lunges. And um, So yeah, I'm going to keep on with, with his suggestions and see how my energy levels go, but good results so far. Interesting. I think we should do a whole podcast on this because it's so tied up with if you're trying to build a business and you're not in a good frame of mind, you're not yeah. eating properly, you're, you know, you're not sleeping properly, it's going to hold you back. Um, or if, you, if you're just trying to develop this whole new skill, because we know how difficult it is. There's so much to learn. There's so much kind yeah. of natural anxiety around developing a new thing. We should, we should do a whole thing on mindset and health, and uh, that'd be really interesting. And I'm, I'm really glad to hear you're, you're, you're forging ahead in your own um, learning on it, because we could definitely pull together the stuff that we've learned and, and uh, mm. ho- hopefully help people. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I could talk for a lot longer, but let's, let's move on to aesthetics, because people yeah. might be yeah, wondering where it's coming on. Um, okay, so do you want to just recap on what we talked about last week, Tim? So the the topic is um, lumps and lips. We talked about basically a diagnostic process where mm. we need to start with getting the context of the patient, who the patient is, their health, past health, past medical history, medication, allergies, um, something on their psychological state. All very helpful to create a picture in your mind of who they are, mm. and then on top of that, you layer. The, um, the symptoms that they've presented with in, a, in, in the chronology of, in which they presented. Um, and then you, you do something on examination as well so that you've, you've developed a little narrative, a story of each part of them, a story of their, their symptoms, their treatment. That's the bit I forgot, sorry. You were actually, you need to also know the story of the treatment. So what was injected, where was injected, how much was injected mm-hmm. on top of their past medical history. And then the uh, symptoms and the stages that they developed, and then the examination on the day that you see them. And if you, if you do all of that, you should develop quite a vivid picture in your mind, which once you know the, what we're going to cover next, you should find it actually quite easy to diagnose what's going on. Um, so, th- so that's what's next, is we're going to talk about the story of, of certain uh, causes of lumps and lips so that you know the pattern of the you know, difference between a hematoma and a, um, a, bl- a, a biofilm reaction and uh, you know, possibly even covering something like uh, impending necrosis because they're all going to have different, they could all present differently over the phone when you first get them. So we're going to learn how to quickly move into diagnosis and then probably in another podcast we can talk about the treatment of each one. So pattern recognition here is important, sounds like. Yeah. Okay. For those people that haven't uh, listened to the previous podcast, we did cover all those things that Tim's just mentioned in that one in, in a lot of depth. So it's probably worth having listened to that first. Okay, so what, what's our first step in uh, uh, sort of diagnosing what the causes are? So, um, so once let's think of, once we have the story of a particular patient, mm-hmm. we then want to start developing in mind the story, of, the typical story of the of the the things that could be causing a particular problem. So we have, um, if we there are a whole load of causes of lumps which are, which we should, which we'll also cover this actually might also go into another podcast there's so much to cover but we're going to we're going to focus on the things that really are caused by aesthetic treatments and then later on we can try and cover some of the things that patients come with that are nothing to do with aesthetics like mucus seals and milia and uh, four eye spots mm-hmm. um, and all of those things we'll try and cover all of them but the the first one is to think about what's the most likely thing for your tra- your for that happens immediately for your patient who's just been treated what are the likely things that they're going to come back with on day one? 
or the evening of, of the treatment, day two, day three, within you know one or two weeks, um, and that and you should those are the ones you're going to get most often um, because they're they're probably more common than the things that can happen later on. But we want to be able to take develop that story quite quickly so you can quickly know what to do and what to say to patients to either allay their fears or to deal with the problem quickly. Okay, I'm going to have a guess then. So. I would say that in those first few hours and days afterwards, probably the most common thing would be bruising, um, so a collection of blood, and that can start to solidify and coagulate, so and that could become a hematoma. Um, and then incorrectly placed filler, if, or if, if someone's perhaps done a bolus, too much of a bolus in one area, it's feeling a bit lumpy, I guess that could be another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and impending necrosis, so we've got an occlusion. Yep. Um, Infection, I wouldn't expect it to come on too soon. I think it'd be rare for it to come on within hours. It'd take at least a few days, I would say. Yeah. Um, am I missing anything obvious? Only the kind of, you know, sometimes patients, you know from GP work, sometimes patients present in very atypical ways for mm. for something. I mean, I know this is true with particularly females and, ch- and cardiac diseases. They sometimes present in very odd ways. It doesn't sound like the textbook. You know, yeah. it's not central chest in crushing chest pain, but they're still having yeah. a heart attack with a, mm. a sore shoulder or something. An itchy um, toe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there's always a chance that it could be impending necrosis. So I would, because that's the most serious thing, it's worth thinking about how that could possibly be related to a lump. Like it could be swelling, for example, an asymmetrical swelling, which is caused by the dilation of blood vessels nearby who are trying to compensate for a blocked artery, mm-hmm. discoloration, pain. Obviously, pain is, should be the main thing, but you just never know. Someone might think mm. pain is normal, and they report to you that their, their lips are, is, is, a, is swollen and a different color. Yeah. So you should, you should interrogate that. Um, and if we talk about that one first, it's not really the typical presentation of a lump, but because it's so important, I want to, I want to cover yeah. it, that you, you just want to, once again, know what's, what's likely to affect from that. So that's most likely to, if we, if we look at the pattern that, that, that would happen with, and it's basically anyone who's had an injection near an artery. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit less likely if, you're, if your patient was having fine lines treated. It's still possible, but mm-hmm. just it's a bit less likely. Um, it's more likely that you were using a needle. So it's a needle treatment near an artery most common probably one of the most common would be inferior superior labral artery certainly that's our experience we've only had three but mm-hmm. um, actually one was on a um, the dorsum of the nose so um, somewhere near where you know there's an artery which doesn't leave you a lot of room because there's arteries everywhere mm. but typical ones would be lips possibly nose um, maybe supertrochlear artery if you feel the frown line that would be an important one to know about mm-hmm. so needle procedure more often than, than not um, Possibly a bruise or pain during the procedure. If you noticed that there's one particular injection that was more painful, um, and then you got some bleeding or bruising that was a bit atypical, um, that might also trigger you to think maybe there's something unusual about this procedure. Um, pain during injection is is a big part of what people often report, mm-hmm. um, and then going on from that, it's what happened next. So, did they complain of pain two or three hours later? Was it was it a, a WhatsApp message? Because I know a lot of clinicians do still manage their own patients that way and I'll get a message saying it really hurts mm. so if you've had that once and then not heard anything for a while and then it's worse again for me that would be a yeah. really important sign to get them back in and, and get them seen yeah. um, so um, I'd still as one second it's not really going to present as a lump for most people but if it does ask them the question is it developing pain wise the, the difference between tenderness and pain is important bruising often is more associated with tenderness than, mm-hmm. than actual pain so if they've got 
increasing pain like a pressure sore which is what uh, that would cause do you want to get them back in sooner okay it can be hard because some people's pain threshold is very low some people will literally you know squeal and say ouch with every single injection it's going to be probably harder to know for those people whether the pain is does normal or whether it is a vo whereas someone that didn't have any pain with the procedure like some people literally say didn't feel a thing yeah and, and likewise, their psychological state, this is why I include that in one of the things about your mm. patient, is because if they're very anxious, regardless of their pain threshold, they can, can overreact. Yeah. Um, but it's difficult because mm. you also, I also think we should tend to overreact rather than underreact. Mm. But at the same time, I mean, I, I do know, I have had one patient very anxiously, you know, we talked down the treatment, didn't do anything, ended up doing a frown line treatment with Botox, and she left went straight from the clinic to the eye hospital because she thought she had a ptosis straight away. Oh, no. And just, and I mean, it's dis- disproportionate even if she did have a ptosis yeah. to go to the eye hospital. But that really taught me that, you know, the symptoms and the, it's basically she had a panic attack. Okay. Um, so, but I knew she was anxious and we talked for ages about, you know, doing as little as possible mm. and then that's what happened. So you, you, you take that into, into account, yeah. the kind of patient it is as well when you're interpreting the symptoms, but always tend to overreact. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so the next, so that, that's probably the most important. The next thing that might happen would be, that, I mean, the most, the most common thing would be, as you said, is to do with related bruising. So mm. what's the story of a bruise? The story of a bruise usually is you see it straight away when you're injecting, you get more bleeding. And I know this happens particularly on hot days. Some people think it's related to the menstrual cycle, mm-hmm. um, that there's more blood in the, in the peripheral tissues, or mm. n- not necessarily that you're, a, but it could just be ovulation time. There's more blood in the, in the tissues. Mm. Um, recent exercise that you say you, you every injection just gushes with blood because there's so much um, blood in the tissue so yeah. that would be a possible risk and i certainly had this one of the first big bruises i had was someone i normal lip treatment who just every single brew every single injection seemed to gush and she had the most horrendous bruising and i couldn't it was just amazing how much bruising she had and it was a normal lip treatment for some there was something about her you know only 32 normal no, mm. no health problems mm. but really bruised a lot mm. so that that would help me to know i would interpret her symptoms differently um, to someone who hadn't hadn't seen any blood on the procedure. I'd say it's much more likely we've got a hematoma here. Okay. So, if you think what happens with that, it, there may be pain at the point of injection, but and and a, and a bit of discomfort afterwards, but it shouldn't be the main feature within the next hour or two. Um, then you'd have developing colour and swelling. Blood causes swelling. Always worth remembering that. I don't think a lot of people um, relate the two as much as they should. Um, I know I remember learning this in surgery if, if you spill a bit of blood in the, in the peritoneum the patient is in a lot of pain for a long time afterwards same with an arthroscopy if they bleed into the joint you've got six weeks of pain and swelling um, so the same thing will happen in your lips if they bruise a lot they're going to swell a lot and it will be swelling around the whole area but capillary refill would be normal because we see a lot of these on the SVT network and other forums I've seen where there is swelling and there's bruising and I think it is the swelling that also scares people Mm-hmm. That where they think it could be a VO. Yeah, and it can look horrible. And the yeah. photographs are often, you know, taken with a flash right up close. And there's like, it's just the most unflattering, awful photograph. Yeah. And it just looks like something out of a, um, some yeah. sort of complications journal. And the patient's like scrunching their face up, the mouth wide open. Yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking in terms of uh, identifying those patients that might be at risk of, of bruising more. You could actually delve a little bit we're getting quite medical here but you could ask them things such as do you um, do you have heavy menstrual cycle do you get nosebleeds do you bleed often because i tend to ask that for in general practice for for people with heavy periods i think there's a massive epidemic of undiagnosed von willebrand's 
disease. This is what a gynecologist was teaching me back in the hospital. Um, so at the moment, all we do is when people have heavy periods or a lot of nosebleeds, we just treat that symptom, but we don't really delve into what it could be. So if you, you could identify these people potentially by asking, just going a little bit off on a tangent, but asking about other, other bleeding episodes they've had or yeah. heavy periods, and then you could at least warn them more that there's nothing you can do about it, but you could warn them they're a lot more likely to bruise. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's worth, it's worth thinking that way always. And, you know, we are we're still presenting ourselves as healthcare professionals, even mm. if we're just primarily focused on aesthetics. And that's, that's a really good responsible approach is that you, you, you interpret symptoms within the whole, the mm. whole person and all the other diseases they could have too. I think it's a good tip. I'm not suggesting people go away and do this with every patient that bleeds a lot, but I did have someone that bled so much all around the face. I was doing a big treatment and every single injection, just like you said with that lady in the lips, um, it bled and it bled for two or three minutes each time. So I actually told her to consider getting some blood tests because it could be one of these cl- yeah. clotting disorders and i think it's something you get with experiences you'll you you get a gut feeling that this is this is very atypical mm. um it's probably not on the first time you get a bleeder when you've just started injecting to, to start referring them to the gp yeah because you won't know how normal it is yet but um i'll be yeah. getting a lot of angry gps calling in us <laughs> <laughs> on that note people are always asking about aspirin clopidogrel and uh warfarin all the NOAX, which are like dibigatran, rivaroxaban, so all these are anticoagulants, antiplatelets. Um, I always say that it wouldn't stop me treating someone, but obviously that risk is much higher. Um, have you ever not treated anyone because they've been on those those drugs? Um, uh, yes, I have. It's, so for me, it's always, it's always been an equation of it's the risk benefit equation. I have a whole video on this if anyone wants to watch it on the Skin Viva Train, uh, Skin Viva YouTube channel, yeah. and you can Google that. Um, but it's it's essentially a a risk benefit and the patient is the one who decides the benefit primarily with your guidance so if you know if it's a good treatment that's going to last for two years and you get a big hematoma it might not be so bad if they're getting double black eyes from one area of botox that lasts for three months and it lasts for six weeks then you're probably not going to be worth it so yeah. it's that kind of equation i think some people see it as a complete contraindication they're like well if what if you get a bigger bruise than not personally it's a bruise it's mm. not it's not it's not necessarily going to cause any long-term problems mm. Um, and also, I have to say, my, my gut instinct, my feeling has always been that there's more difference between different people than there is between someone on aspirin and warfarin. If yeah. you look at the average, there's just some, the worst bruise I've ever had was one area of Botox, injected a cephalic vein, you've got two black eyes, never seen anything like it. From one injection, you know, mm. and I just, it, um, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe what, she's showing the pictures. I was utterly shocked that mm. that would happen from one area of Botox. And she was on nothing. Um, she was a little slightly on the older end of the spectrum, but not, you know, she wasn't ancient um what's the older end of the spectrum dr tim oh well for us our average age is 43 so uh, if you're in your if you're into your 70s you're on the older end of the spectrum but oldest client is still 80 late late 80s we have two wow. or three eight, that i know of are in the mm. late 80s and i think the oldest ever was in it was 92 she was great 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 lady used to still smoke 40 a day and uh, <laughs> and uh, she's like any 35 year old mentally Right. Maybe she followed the, the four pillar plan. Could be. <laughs> <laughs> right. Back to um, back to where we were. So yeah. So we're t- we're the the hematoma thing is um, a lot of swelling on day on day two, and mm. then should start to recover. But color can still be unpleasant, so you can get worsening color. It looks horrible, but you shouldn't have pain. I think that's the most important thing to diagnose a hematoma is you have a tender, painful area when you squeeze it. Yeah. Sorry, tender area when you squeeze it. Painful initially, but shouldn't be painful. 
Um, you know, day two, day three, only when you touch it, it should be painful. It shouldn't be continuing. So, and the swelling might peak on day one, should start to get less. Mm. If it's getting more or persistent, then you're thinking of other things like re infections or reactions. Um, capillary refill can be hard to check, so I, I recommend that you check any area you can find near the area if you're concerned about it being a blockage, because obviously that's often a, the correlation between a big bruise and a potential blocked um, labial artery or mm. something like that is, um, is, is obvious. It might be re related, so you need to try and find capillary refill somewhere or some other indication in the history um, that it's actually not a blocked artery, which is unlikely. Okay. So that's your initial, your first two or three days. The only thing I would point out is that the, remember that hematomas, some people think, oh, bruising's normal. And for some reason, they then later on start to worry about the induration you can get from a bruise. And I've certainly had quite a few people who come three, six weeks later with a lump. And when you get asking them what happened, they say, yeah, that side did bruise really badly. For me, that, that's just part of the induration you get from a bruise. And they, they, for some reason, feel different about it when it hasn't got a color. Um, they start to think, oh, that's bad. And it's going to be permanent. But it just takes a bit longer. It can take quite a few weeks, but it's basically to do with inflammation that blood causes. Okay. Possibly a bit of coagulated blood that is capsulated, or do we, do we know exactly what's going on? There? I think it's to do with the the reaction that blood stimulates yeah. and the amount of the white blood cells rushing to the area to clear up all the mess, and they basically produce make your fibroblasts produce more collagen in response to all the right. general inflammation, and you basically have a little knot of collagen amongst okay. um, you know debris that needs needs to be cleared up. Fine. Okay, so we talked about VO bruising. Any of the other early causes in the first few days? Uh, inflammation is part of it. I mean, it's, it's similar. I mean, I've got it on my list as inflammation, but normally that would go with a bruise. Um, I've certainly had some people who seem to have a, a lump and inflammation where I can't see any discoloration, and that just fades with time. Uh, one of the videos that we produced is actually of a, of a member of our staff that had treatment, um, and, she, and she just had something similar, a little tender spot two to three weeks later. Um, it's, it's a bit more like like in, like induration, but it was a bit it was just a bit inflamed as well, uh, but it had had been pretty much from the beginning, and uh, but had settled over time. So mm. we left it and it got better, um, but that was that was a little bit of inflammation from the procedure, I think, rather than the filler. I mean, you never know; it might have been a little bit of bacteria that the body got in and sorted out, but it didn't need any treatment and it got better. Okay. So inflammation is on there, but it would tend to go with one of the other things, like like a bruise. A cold sore outbreak would that tend to come on? I would guess a few days later. I haven't seen it personally afterwards, but yeah, um, I wouldn't think it'd be immediate. Yeah, and they usually they wouldn't normally present as a lump because most people who had a cold sore know what a cold sore looks like. Mm. But the I have seen one that turned into an abscess, so um, that's the kind of thing you worry about. Is I had a cold sore and then it's just got worse and worse, and I imagine that that's basically a cold sore plus bacteria and it's all going on. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know you get, um, you know, little, um, what are they called? Hepatic Whitlow. Whitlows. And, and I, I wonder, because that's a bit like a little abscess, but my understanding of most, mostly cold sores are on the surface. and they're, But I don't know. I couldn't find out any information about whether they actually form abscesses or whether when you have an abscess, like a lip that was had a cold sore outbreak that was actually swollen and lumpy, whether that's a mixture of bacteria and virus. Um, I, would, I would make the decision probably based on the amount of, Inflammation, and if it was pus or something, I might add antibiotics as well as acyclovir. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Um, just as a as a side note, I did hear um, of a, a case in Manchester. Someone came to see us who'd had a who'd had their lips injected. Um, the practitioner, very bravely, was well, not bravely, 
stupidly said, uh, a lot of people wouldn't treat someone who, who has an active cold source, but I don't mind. I'll do it for you. Like <laughs> an extra bonus. So she, she got this really big um, uh, abscess and, and it was nasty. And she actually came, just w- literally walked in the front door of our clinic right. and asked for help. And I think Dr. Sharon helped her. Mm-hmm. And she, but she ended up having to have it drained. So she got an abscess that had, had to be drained that was right. triggered by a cold sore. Um, uh, another side little tip is when, if this ever happens to you, don't over the phone quote your consent form because that's what happened to this lady which was mm-hmm. um you you know you signed the consent form therefore you accepted the risk like mm. it's the worst thing you can say even though it's true yeah you've got to give people a lot of care when they're having a problem like this mm. i guess that person's lucky that there was no follow-on follow on from that complaint i, I don't know if there was i wouldn't be surprised if there was but yeah. i don't know any more from it from yeah. that. okay that's useful um yeah so what else have we got straight afterwards? We've got, so a, an infection, this is later on. As you, I agree with you, I think it's unlikely that you get an infection straight away. So I think that w- that's going to cover most of the things you're going to see in day one, day two, which is m- the majority of which is bruising and swelling. Um, but you have to rule out the serious stuff. So the later on stuff is where it gets, it gets interesting and, and worse. I mean, I know a lot of people fear blocking a blood vessel more than anything, but personally, I find biofilms one of the most stressful things mm. to deal with because you, you just don't have the control. You, I actually feel I'm more in control of unblocking an artery than I do of treating biofilm sometimes. That's interesting. Um, and I certainly had, a, had one case that just went, just went on and on and on. Um, very, very difficult. Um, and I think it starts often with lips. And this is exactly the case I had. So the, the typical story of a biofilm would be a, a later onset isolated um, area of inflammation that sometimes then starts to spread. So the one I had was it started at the oral commissure, which I think is a really vulnerable spot for infection because you, it doesn't matter how much you clean it, they're going to get some saliva there mm. if you've entered a needle. And she started with tingling. So tingling at the corner of her mouth. L- literally the kind of thing that you could put down to nothing you know, you know, from being a GP, you know, tingling. <laughs> it's like a nightmare mm. symptom where it could be anything. It's yeah, nearly always nothing. Yeah. Um, and if you leave, and it's often associated with anxiety. Mm. So it's anxious people who pick up normal sensations and amplify them in their yeah. minds. And um, so, but that's what it has started with. Then it turned into the lump. So that's your presentation of a lump right. starts. And there's a progression for me, very GP skill progression bad. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you if it stays the same, you can kind of tolerate you know seeing what will happen. But if you're getting a sense of progress, you want to act often want to act. So for her, it was tingling followed by a lump at the corner of her lip. Um, and I then started antibiotics from memory. I'm not going to remember all that. I haven't actually this just popped into my head. I didn't actually review the whole case, mm-hmm. but I did start with antibiotics. But the, the the thing that you're looking for in terms of diagnosing is it it can happen w- probably. Within, I think for her it was three weeks after the procedure, so quite a long time actually. Right. Um, Would you say that is sort of average for a biofilm presentation, at least a few weeks? I, d- I don't know if it's average because the other thing you've got to think about is that these bacteria sometimes come not from the procedure; they come from a dental infection mm-hmm. or from brushing your teeth because we know you get um, microtraumas. Yeah, you get you get bacteria bacteremia just from brushing your teeth. Mm. Um, so it could come from something else. Um, so I, I don't 100 know that. Usually, I would say if it's it's you know if it's from the procedure, you're going to get something within two weeks. I would have thought three weeks. I would I guess uh, I, you know this is just a gut feeling, um, and then it, and it's the progressive nature that's a problem. Uh, looking back, the the weird start of the symptoms, the isolated tingling plus a bit of redness plus a bit of pain. That for me that that would make me more certain quicker to do something 
around biofilm. I think the oral commissure is something that isn't cleaned properly when I watch other people clean it, um, especially if you've got quite a strong fold, like a downturned mouth. People don't lift that up to then clean in the middle and there's always makeup and just crud. Who knows what it is? Food debris. Yeah. But yeah, it, I, I can see why that's an area sometimes that's, that's missed or it might just be like you say, it's I think, lips in general. Yeah, I, I think it's, to, from one. I mean, I absolutely agree with you. I think, and it's, it's, isn't it so often that you, you do a good clean of the face and then you do it, because I, I wipe constantly throughout procedures now and I get through those Clonel wipes like there's no tomorrow. Yeah. But you, you sometimes have cleaned it multiple times and you still get more makeup yeah. off. So it actually takes a lot of effort to get it. And makeup, as we know, is filthy. Yeah. So you want to get as much. You did do a video. Did you do a video about makeup with a toilet did. seat? I and did, it, yeah, I did. You were in the, there's yeah. more, yeah, more bacteria <laughs> in a makeup pot than a toilet seat. And, yeah, yeah, easy. So, um, but the one of the things that got me thinking about it was if you're injecting, because often you often inject quite closely oral commissure. Mm. Essentially, you're going to have saliva on that within minutes of uh, most procedures. A tiny amount in your mouth is filthy. Mm. Um, so, perhaps mouthwash before treatments might be a good idea. And we have discussed it before, but the practicalities can be a bit. I don't think you drop the bacteria count significantly. I think it's still mm. going to be. Um, I mean, and most dentists, when I've discussed this with dentists, they basically take the view that it's it's not a sterile procedure and never will be, mm. um, and you have to rely on other things. Okay. Um, so we're talking about biofilms. The difference between an acute infection and a biofilm then, so the acute infection would probably present within a few days probably, and biofilms we, we think probably a few weeks later. Treatment will come on to for, for biofilms. For an acute infection... Would you treat that with something like we would treat a normal skin infection, such as flu clocks, or are you going to cover for some more... Sorry, flu clocks are selling, I'm being very GP. Or would you cover for more anaerobic bacteria, so a broader spectrum? Um, yeah, we should definitely cover this more in, in detail. Because it gets Yeah, it does get, <laughs> okay. it does get a bit interesting when we yeah. go on to the, the other crazy things that you can add to it. But yeah, um, but yeah generally, it's, a, it's something like clarithromycin first. Okay. And then if it doesn't get better, then you start to add more things to it. Because so that's the biofilm one, isn't it? But I'm just thinking for the acute infection, would you apply the same principles in terms of the choice? Okay. Um, yeah, I think I, think I would. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So the, the, thing to, the, the thing that's always so confusing with biofilms is, is it reaction or is it a biofilm? Mm. Um, and that, that's something we're thinking about that I think... So, and it's also confusing because time-wise you can't necessarily tell because your immune system can react to something at any point. And t- typically, actually, that's what... The first one I always remember was someone who was on a cruise and it was six months after her procedure and she got diarrhea and vomiting on this cruise and then, and then reacted to a filler. And I, got, I obviously got the, the worst holiday snap <laughs> you've ever seen. Um, <laughs> Lucky you. <Yeah. laughs> but it's, um, it's that... And, and there's that constant... Is this because your immune system has picked up something new and is now reacting to the filler? Is it because yeah. there's a bacteremia and the and the the filler is just latched on the bacteria mm-hmm. is latched onto the filler? Um, you know what's actually going on, and it's really hard to tell. I think I certainly see it with people with viral infections. I've had a few that are just so much like what you expect a typical viral infection to do, and they react to the filler, and it goes it's it's self limiting, and they're interesting because you kind of want to prescribe steroids. But then there's that doubt about whether it's whether it's a bacteria or not, and and this is why if you're super cautious, sometimes you end up adding antibiotics and steroids mm. to someone who, who's probably having a reaction. Um, but it is tricky; it's very hard to diagnose. See, I'm quite I give steroids out quite easily, and I think that comes from experience and being comfortable with it um, in my day to day practice as a GP. But 
when I was reading the ACE guidelines on um, DONS, so delayed onset nodules, they do say you've got to be very careful with prescribing steroids alone because if there's any hint of bacteria there or biofilm, you could actually make the situation a lot worse. So it probably will change my my practice there, my threshold for giving antibiotics, clarithromycin to start with. Yeah, It's probably a bit lower now. So in terms of telling the difference, though, if, from a diagnostic point of view, I don't think you can tell the difference that easily between no. chron- chronology-wise between a reaction and, and a biofilm mm. because they, they can basically happen another way. I think biofilms, on balance, you'd think are a little bit more likely to happen sooner because of the procedure being a risk. Mm. But once you're out of the first three weeks, it could still be a reaction or an infection, except for one thing, which I, I, it does make sense to me that you're more likely to have isolated symptoms as in just the lower lip, not the top and the bottom lip if you're having a lip reaction, if, if it's a reaction, because that's systemic, it's your whole immune system reacting. Yeah. Whereas biofilms, you would think of, uh, on balance a bit more likely to be isolated, and then maybe spread, yeah. but not to start everywhere at once simultaneously. So that would be the, the biggest differentiator for me between a biofilm and mm. a reaction is, is whether it's holistic, the whole everything going off at once or whether it's isolated that's where your history would be key to to really gauge what the pattern of of progression was yeah yeah um the only other thing that might be an issue is is the degree of inflammation i just feel like it's a possibly a bit more likely you're going to have a bit more of an angry reaction with a biofilm uh, rather than a reaction um where it might just be filler going a bit hard or tender but there's not a huge amount of inflammation um that's not really based on evidence it's just more of a kind of that's my mental model of how these things would tend to work okay we should probably talk a bit about what biofilms are they're super interesting things yeah okay um so yeah the 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 really interesting thing about i used to just picture it as okay bacteria arrive somewhere and all bacteria secrete a bit of gel and then they hide in the gel it's actually more interesting than that so biofilms are basically an, an, an evolved reaction to attack so if if you if you put that bacteria in a river, it would probably just grow, and they they're planktonic, so they float around independently. Each each organism acts um, as an individual organism. As soon as they um, certain bacteria, I think a lot of bacteria get attacked, they they do this biofilm thing where they find something that they can latch onto, and they literally excrete these little structures that embed them on permanently onto that surface, and then they start to produce this gel, and this kind of covers all these bacteria in this. Um, kind of mixture of proteins and, and connective tissue, um, carbohydrate molecules. I think actually some of them are hyaluronic acid, so they produce some of their own hyaluronic acid. Um, and then the really interesting thing is that they then start to interact more as one organism. So you'll have around the periphery organisms that are, are getting the majority of the of the the oxygen from the environment, and they're they're a bit they're acting they're growing a bit faster towards the middle. They're much slower. Um, and then they they share they basically are sharing information what's going on so the immune system creepy yeah they're 100 it's it's, it's, it is frightening. Yeah. and then they share dna so like they're sharing their little secrets so yeah. they're kind of um they they in fact um there's there are even connections between the individual cells cytoplasms where they're passing dna around um and whatever is working um, becomes more common okay. so it's it's a whole lot more scary than just hiding in the film they're actually mm. acting as a as one organism and adapting to yeah learning from the environment ch- changing and you can treat them with antibiotics but you it's basically in the order of sort of hundreds to thousands of times higher concentrations before you'll mostly get enough of an effect on the on the biofilm so okay. that they're diff they're that's this is why they're so horrible to treat so resistant you're, you're up against an evolved kind of resistant 
defense mechanism that's mm. that literally is defending against the thing you'd like to use yeah so this is one of the reasons why i think treating quickly is important like if you you shouldn't leave to another week of something that seems a bit unusual i'd rather give antibiotics sooner rather than later okay um and similarly i think high lays quite soon is, is a good idea and hopefully um and that will prevent you going down the route of of kind of surgically removing things or which i think is very rare but it's possible that you can do it that way we've talked about this before again going back to the ace guidelines they, they don't suggest highlights or quite far down the line they act- actually suggest around eight weeks or possibly more of antibiotics before the highlays but i personally would hit it with highlays sooner because if that clump that follows the filler or just a small thread of filler is harboring that biofilm then it seems to make sense to me to try and get rid of that first as well as as well as the antibiotics sorry yeah i 100 percent agree i think it's um i, I don't know why hyalase is, is sometimes treated like it's like it's the atomic answer like mm. it, it really is a pretty safe get your allergy test done inject it it solves a lot of problems um personally i mean i really love to hear other people's thoughts on this if you disagree with this mm. um but personally i think it's a it's a relatively light touch good problem solver that you should use sooner rather than later certainly i think the risk of highlays compared with eight weeks of all those antibiotics is yeah. is minor i would much rather personally as a patient i would take highlays versus eight weeks of antibiotics for almost anything yeah like, if that's the choice i'm that i would eight weeks is a long yeah. time on some of these things yeah because we, we shouldn't underestimate the effects that the antibiotics have not only with the the side effects but the potential for things like c diff so one of the antibiotics in the guidance is ciprofloxacin so if you can't take clarithromycin or doxycycline which are the first two then cipro which is a really powerful antibiotic and the risk of, of c diff which i'm sure most people have heard of um is is quite significant along with other things such you can even get achilles tendonitis with ciprofloxacin yeah. or we'll snap your achilles altogether i've heard that can actually rupture yeah ruptured exactly um so yeah not not to be taken lightly so i think i would also highly sooner in this situation yeah i i think so too okay is it worth going through the antibiotic protocol a little bit or is it, should we we'll let people refer to the ace guidance for that um, yeah, well, we can, we can cover it in more detail. We'll talk through because there's a, there's more stuff that comes off that which I want to talk about in more detail. Okay, um, because it is it is complex and I yeah. think quite uncertain. I think there's there's more to be learned about how to handle that yeah. uh, in detail. Um, yeah, so I think I think the ma- the main thing is hopefully there's a bit of a clearer picture about what to expect for each for each of your common types of lump, um, the ones that happen sooner, the ones that happen later, the difference between a reaction and an infection. Um, there's one other thing because we have talked a lot about management even though it's naturally follows on so we've been dragged dragged into it because it's interesting as well um but if you're going to highlight something um and you think it might be an infection it does make sense to have them on antibiotics at the point of highlighting because otherwise you could in theory cause a bacteremia mm. um because you, because highlays allows things to permeate so well so you might end up with a lot of bacteria suddenly entering entering the blood bloodstream it would be nice to have an antibiotic there at the same time yes okay um, so we've got, yeah, we've actually covered uh, covered most of them. Okay, um, so shall we do our clinical tip of the week? What have you got for us, Tim? So, um, so consultation tip. Sorry, someone just sent me a message through the window. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the 
I've forgotten what we said we about consultation. The clinical tip. I, uh, so the consultation tip I've got. Yeah. I don't know if I wrote something down for clinical tip. I did. Oh, it was the myomodulation thing. Myomodulation, we just talked about yes. it, yeah. So actually, we just had a great um, CBD session with our doctors, and we were talking about um, before and after pictures. And uh, wh- one of the things that's really useful is that we've noticed, and as part of the MD Codes uh, training, and Ritu de Maio, uh recently did a really good presentation on this where it's it's about the effect that fillers have on the the movement of muscles and basically the harmony that your face uh, has in as you get older you kind of lose some of the harmony so muscles tend to be unopposed by fat in the same way and in some of your expressions can just look a little bit less beautiful than they once were so myomodulation is this ability to reduce the effect of that and the the tip is take fo- not don't only take pictures of your patient moving for Botox treatments because you're going to change how their face moves for filler treatments too and it's nearly always a good thing if you've done the right treatment and you can really show them the subtlety of what you've created if you get a good for example a nasolabial fold treatment if you get a good before and after picture where they're moving you can actually show them that that slight maybe slightly snarly type smile you can get as you get older where it's exaggerated becomes harmonized and they just look slightly softer when they smile which can be a good thing um, so take pictures of uh, dynamic movement for filler as well as Botox. So myomodulation, the term actually just refers to the effect filler is having on the dynamic movements of the face. It, yeah, that's what it's, it's modifying the muscles activity through, it's similar to the styling effect on the heart where if you, uh, if you remember that from med school or being a junior doctor that the more stretched the myocardium is, the weaker it is. And then there's a point where it's at the right volume where it's it's the most efficient at pumping, so it's stronger. And then, and I'm presuming there's something on the other end of that. But if you basically have um, a stretched muscle is a bit weaker, at least initially, there's a point where as it contracts, it gets stronger and stronger. And it's to do with the overlap of the myofibrils. So if you, in its sweet spot, it's quite powerful. And as you get older, it, it's, it's basically in its sweet spot much more often. So a small amount of stimuli causes a big contraction. And yeah. as you add filler, it just gets a little bit stretched, and that small amount of, of input causes less um, contractility, and it just softens some ac- some some muscle action, and that's usually harmonising. Can you give me any examples of where you've you've seen this or where you, where you use that effect? Um, the most obvious is nasolabial folds and uh, slight gummy smile. So just that that the, and hyperdynamic mid face so lifting of the of the lip and contractions around the nose are just a bit stronger before you do a nasolabial fold treatment yeah um i've also seen it really well around the eye so i'm treating underneath orbicularis oculi with uh, something like volbella or volift laterally mm-hmm. and you still smile normally but it's just less powerful so the eye stays a bit more open when you're yeah. s- excuse me when you're smiling okay. um, chins as well are a good one as well a lot of people have hypertonic chins yeah. and they sit at rest with a contract with a contracting chin and a little bit of volume there can make a big difference and I think the forehead filler, now, now I think of it, has, has helped with, with lines for oh, probably yeah. the very same reason. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Nice for people who get brow drops from Botox. You just put a little bit of filler in and it, it does something similar to Botox with zero risk of a drop. Okay. Ah, interesting concept. And then to finish off, consultation hack of the week. Consultation hack. So hack. this was, um, I feel like you should do one of these and I should do one of these. <laughs> <laughs> probably. I'm just lazy. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's, this is this is something that would, it's another wonderful thing I've learned a lot from general practice, which is how powerful it is to ask permission before each stage of the consultation. 
Um, and it's, it's not because you really need the permission or that you think the patient's going to say no. It's about getting them in the right frame of mind for the next step in the process and making them feel in control. So it could be something like, um, I'm just going to, uh, is it okay if I just mark on your face to do, to do the treatment? Feels a lot better than just marking on their face because there's mm-hmm. that element of you coming into my body space and about to do something to me. And yeah, of course, I basically consent to it, but it does feel nicer when you're when you're giving people permission at each stage and it can it can also be do you mind if i do a facial analysis do you mind if i just um uh show you in the mirror a little bit more about what's causing that problem at each point you their frame of mind is is less defensive and for me one of the big things i'm always trying to do in the consultation is keep people in a nice relaxed controlled frame of mind because they're much more receptive to all the things i'm trying to explain and teach them while i'm going through the process for me the 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 biggest enemy in the consultation is someone in a, in a defensive mindset. So yeah. a lot of what I do is about keeping them relaxed and keeping communication flowing and feel, should feel non-threatening. And asking permission for each step is a very important part of it. That's interesting. I imagine they're going to feel more in control as well. If you're asking subconsciously, they feel, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm in control here, whether that's partly when it comes to dis- decision-making about treatments or prices or, yeah, along the whole step of the way. That's Absolutely, the sort of question yeah. you're asking each time. The the analogy I, I always use is there's a great GIF on the on on the internet which I came across which I have in mm. a presentation which is just this little stick man, and someone's laying laying the path out in front of him. They lay the the path and he walks onto it. And that's what I, the consultation should feel like the whole mm. way through. Is you lay the path and they step forward, nice. rather than pushing them along a path, which gets them to the same place. But usually it's it's actually more difficult, a little bit less unpleasant, and sometimes they'll they'll give up and say no you know sooner than if you've allowed them to feel in control the whole way yeah lovely that's a nice little tip okay well that wraps up this episode um the part three we've still not finished lips this is an epic series about lumps in the lips so we'll move on to actual treatment protocols next time is there anything else you want to cover in that episode we'll see we do go off tangents we do. Quite a lot. <laughs> i'm <laughs> sure do. it'll be amazing though <laughs> We'll find out more about Tim's running and his early morning wake-ups and, and whatnot. Next it's your four pillars, which I want to hear more about. Yes. Right, thanks for listening and see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.